Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Today, we will hear a conversation between novelist Eli Gottlieb and the preeminent author Tobias Wolf, recorded at the Ricketson Theater in Denver, Colorado. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming tonight. Uh, you're in for quite a treat. And to that end, could you all please turn your cell phones off? Make sure that you've done that. Uh, first of all, I want to say uh, what an honor it is for me to share the stage with Tobias Wolf, who is, not to mince words, a hero of mine. That's a heavy word, hero. It happens in this case to be true. I first met Toby in the flesh in Rome, where we shared a few happy evenings together, evenings inflected by his great good humor and that of his wife and daughter. But I'd met him years earlier in the pages of this boy's life. I still remember first reading that book, and I remember as well my reaction, which was that of being hauled bodily through the air and back in time to a small town in the Cascade Mountains where there lived a father so callous, cruel, and scheming that I became frantic as I read, wanting to arrest him, to take him out, to in some way or another stop him from brutalizing his sensitive stepson. Instead of calling social services, I read on, mesmerized by the power of the prose. When I think of the work of Tobias Wolff, I think of a music of the most exacting moral tolerances. I think of someone who inserts language into the fault lines in contemporary life and then torques that language so that the cracks open to let in light. His sentences are as true and alive as anyone writing in English. On top of that, he's gifted with a kind of artistic marksmanship which allows him to zero in infallibly on the telling emotional moment in which a person stands revealed. Once his characters are set in motion, he waits them out with a patience akin to love, standing by until they do not what's right, but what's entirely, heartbreakingly, in keeping with their own destinies. There's a moment in every single Tobias Wolff story or narrative where the reader feels his own nerve about to fail, where he feels that the author is about to reveal some truth about human nature so deep, disturbing, and inevitable that though he wants to look away, he cannot. It's in that moment of readerly capture that he steps away from his contemporaries and claims his distinction as America's greatest living short story writer. He shows us to ourselves as we are and forgives us in advance for not measuring up to the size of our self-conceptions. For that among many other reasons, he is indispensable. Tobias Wolf. Thank you. It's really uh, wonderful to be here. And uh, I'm hoping from this moment on to outsource or subcontract my interview to Andrea. She's, f- <laughs> she's funnier than I am. And- <laughs> And she thinks faster on her feet than I do. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, this is, this is a pleasure indeed. And uh, coming, comings together that we, we, we sometimes have with uh, kindred spirits and, 
And uh, as he described, and as Andrea, uh, as he talked about this boy's life, and as Andrea talked about the boy who went away, I, I had similar emotions in reading that. I was really uh, powerfully taken by that book, um, and I haven't forgotten it at all. And that was uh, some five years ago when I read it. Um, and uh, I'm really, really pleased about the new book. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. Um, well, should I read a little? Yeah, yeah, yeah by uh, all and means. And then uh, we can have a chat. Good. And then we'll talk. Um, someone kindly uh, forwarded to me a, a, a column by your uh, writer in the Denver Post, Bill Houston. Uh, in, in uh, which uh, it was recalled that I chewed the head off of somebody who was sitting in the audience the last time I was at the tattered cover and quietly, innocently reading along with me in their book as I was reading. And uh, um, I assure you, I have no problem if you want to read along with me. You're very welcome. Uh, that wasn't, of course, the way I remembered it. <laughs> I'm going to read first from uh, my last book. And uh, when, I was, uh, uh, when I was about, when I was 15, I, uh, I through various subterfuges, managed to get a scholarship to a boarding school in, in, back east and escape the situation that I was in there. And uh, one of the things that, that was, uh, this is a novel, I'm sorry, I should introduce it a little better, called Old School. And I, incidentally, I got that title before Will Ferrell did, so uh, <laughs> uh, fat lot of good that does me. But anyway, I was there first. Uh, but uh, it was quite, I, I had not known anything like the world I found myself in there. And I wanted to uh, write about that for years and years afterwards and, and trying to imagine how I might frame it. One of the things that, uh, uh, that was very distinctive about the school was the, uh, the, the extraordinary visiting writers that they brought in. I saw Robert Frost there. I saw William Golding and, uh, uh, and other writers. And they used to have these kind of writing competitions, and they would choose uh, uh, one person to meet with the visiting writer. And that custom gave rise to what is a, a, the kind of core situation of the book, which is the competition among certain of these students to meet, to meet these writers. It was a very literary place. Edmund Wilson had gone there and used to come back and give talks. Someone had endowed this reading series in his name. Uh, and, uh, and it catches, I think, something that was very typical not just of me, but of many of my classmates, which was a real literary enthusiasm of the time. So Robert Frost is going to be visiting this school, and already certain of the boys are thinking about how they might win an audience with him, kind of like securing an audience with the Pope at that point. Frost's visit was announced in early October. At first, the news made me giddy, but that night I grew morose with the dread of defeat. I couldn't sleep. Finally, I got up and sat at my desk with two notebooks full of poetry I'd written when taking a break from stories. While my roommate muttered in his dreams, I bent over the pages and read piece after piece like song number eight. <laughs> <laughs> 
to the hopeless of the hopeless of the night. I sing my song and hopeless end my song. And do not pity me for I am without hope and do not pity them for they are without hope and there the poem ended. Beneath it I had written fragment. I'd written fragment beneath most of the poems in the notebooks and this description was in every case accurate. Each of them had been composed in some fever of ardor or philosophy that deserted me before I could bring it to the point of significance. The few poems I had finished seemed, in the hard circle of light thrown by the gooseneck lamp, even more disappointing. The beauty of a fragment is that it still supports the hope of brilliant completeness. (laughs) I thought of stitching several of them together into a sequence a la The Wasteland, but that they would thereby become meaningful seemed too much to hope for. I would have to write something new. The deadline for submissions was three weeks away. I could write a poem in that time, but what kind of poem should I write? Aside from being good, it would have to stand out from those of my competitors. But at least I knew who my competitors were. One was Bill White, my roommate. Bill had already written most of a novel, the first chapter of which we'd published in Troubadour, our literary magazine. Two men and a woman are isolated in a hunting lodge during a blizzard. As you read on, you begin to get the picture. One of the men is a famous actor, the woman is his wife, and the second man is a surgeon. The men are old friends, but it emerges that the actor's wife is having an affair with the surgeon, who, it turns out, had once saved the actor's life with an impromptu tracheotomy (laughs) during a safari. (laughs) Have to take my hat off to you, said Montague. Tricky bit of tradecraft, given the circumstances. Storm blowing the damn tent down and the beaters into the liquor. I shan't forget it. (laughs) Not at all, not at all, said Dr. Coates. The merest intern could have done as well, probably better. I shan't forget it, Montague repeated. (laughs) I'm forever in your debt, he added coldly. Aren't we all, said Ashley, pouring herself another scotch. She stared at the falling snow. Whatever would we do without the good doctor's services? You bitch, said Montague. (laughs) You perfectly beautiful bitch. (laughs) Though Bill hadn't let me read the rest of his novel, he was letting it settle before the final polish. I doubted that the hunting party's meticulously described rifles would stay locked in their cases for long. Bill was a contender. So was Jeff Purcell, known as Little Jeff, because we had another Jeff Purcell in our class, his cousin, Big Jeff. In fact, Little Jeff wasn't little, and Big Jeff wasn't big, just bigger than Little Jeff, (laughs) who resented Big Jeff, partly, no doubt, for inadvertently imposing this odious nickname on him. Little Jeff was a friend of mine, so like his other friends, I called him Purcell. Purcell habitually kept his arms folded across his chest like a Civil War general in a daguerreotype. 
This bellicose pose suited him. Under his bristling crew cut, he cultivated a sulfurous gift for invective and contempt. He was the Herod of our editorial sessions, poised to strike down every innocent who presumed to offer us a manuscript. He had exacting standards, moral, political, aesthetic. Purcell even flouted the timeless protocol of pretending to admire the work of his fellow editors. At one of our meetings, he declared that a story of mine called Suicide Note read as if it had been written after the narrator blew his brains out. <laughs> Purcell came from a rich social family, but you wouldn't have guessed it from his stories and poems, or maybe you would. His subject was the injustice of relations between high and low. He had written a ballad about a miner being sent deep into the earth to perish in a cave-in, while the mine owner hand-feeds filet mignon to his hunting dogs, cooing to them in baby talk. And his last troubadour piece was an epistolary story in which a general writes congratulatory letters to various grieving women after getting their husbands and sons slaughtered. You may rejoice for your fallen hero, knowing that his heart was perforated for our glorious cause. And you and your little ones can rest assured that his missing head, wherever it may be, is filled with the pride of sacrifice and radiant memories of the homeland for which he died so eagerly. In this, as in all his work, I felt the influence of Hemingway, but I kept that thought to myself. I was in debt to Hemingway, up to my ears. Bill and I even talked like Hemingway characters, though in travesty, as if to deny our discipleship. That is your bed, and it is a good bed, and you must make it, and you must make it well. Or, today is the day of meatloaf. The meatloaf is swell. It is swell, but when it is gone, the not having meatloaf will be tragic, and the meatloaf man will not come anymore. All of us owed someone, Hemingway or Cummings or Kerouac, or all of them and more. We wouldn't have admitted it, but the knowledge was surely there because imitation was the only charge we never brought against the submissions we mocked so cruelly. There was no profit in it. Once crystallized, consciousness of influence would have doomed the collective and necessary fantasy that our work was purely our own. These, then, were two of the boys who stood between me and Robert Frost. Of course, there were other self-confessed writers in my class, but I'd read their English papers and troubadour submissions and seen nothing to worry me except their desire. So much desire. Why did so many of us want to be writers? It seemed unreasonable, but there were reasons. The atmosphere of our school crackled with sexual static. We had the occasional dance with Miss Cobb's Academy and a few other girls' schools, but these brief affairs only cranked up the charge. And though from day to day we saw the master's wives, Roberta Ramsey alone had the goods to enter our dreams. 
The absence of an actual girl to compete for meant that every other prize became feminized. For honors in sport, scholarship, music, and writing, we cracked our heads together like mountain rams. This aspect of my ambition was obscure to me at the time, but there was another that I did recognize, though vaguely and almost in spite of myself, the problem of class. Class was a fact, not just the clothes a boy wore, but how he wore them, how he spent his summers, the sports he knew how to play, his way of turning cold at the mention of money or at the spectacle of ambition too nakedly revealed. You felt it as a depth of ease in certain boys, their innate, affable assurance that they would not have to struggle for a place in the world that it had already been reserved for them. A depth of ease, or, in the case of Purcell and a few others, a sullen antipathy toward the padding that hemmed them in and muffled the edges of life. Yet even in the act of kicking against it, they were defined by it and protected by it, and to some extent unconscious of it. Purcell himself had a collection of first editions you'd almost have to own a mine to pay for. These things I understood instinctively. I hardly gave them voice, not even within the privacy of my thoughts, precisely because the school's democratic self-conception was itself unspoken and thus inarguable. But other boys must have felt the same intimations. Maybe that was why so many of them wanted to become writers. Maybe it seemed to them, as it did to me, that to be a writer was to escape the problems of blood and class. Writers formed a society of their own outside the common hierarchy. This gave them a power not conferred by privilege, the power to create images of the system they stood apart from and thereby to judge it. I hadn't heard anyone speak of a writer as having power. Truth, wit, understanding, even courage, but never power. We had talked in class about Pasternak and his troubles and the long history of Russian writers being imprisoned and killed for not writing as the party wished. Augustus Caesar had sent our Latin masters, beloved Ovid, into exile. Yet the effect of all these stories was to make me feel not Caesar's power, but Caesar's fear of Ovid. And why would Caesar fear Ovid, except for knowing that neither his divinity nor all his legions could protect him from a good line of poetry? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to conclude this reading with a quite short story that Eli had particularly asked that I read. Uh, he had some thoughts that he wanted to explore about this story, so it would be helpful, I think, for all of us if I did read it. And uh, I mean, I remember it well, but uh, it would help you, I think, to, if we're going to talk about it. <laughs> This is called uh, Bullet in the Brain. This, is the, uh, this story concludes my last collection of stories, uh, we, and, uh, which is called The Night in Question. 
Anders couldn't get to the bank until just before it closed. So, of course, the line was endless, and he got stuck behind two women whose loud, stupid conversation put him in a murderous temper. He was never in the best of tempers anyway, Anders, a book critic, known for the weary, elegant savagery with which he dispatched almost everything he reviewed. With the line still doubled around the rope, one of the tellers stuck a position closed sign in her window and walked to the back of the bank where she leaned against a desk and began to pass the time with a man shuffling papers. The women in front of Anders broke off their conversation and watched the teller with hatred. Oh, that's nice, one of them said. She turned to Anders and added, confident of his accord, one of those little human touches that keep us coming back for more. (laughs) Anders had conceived his own towering hatred of the teller, (laughs) but he immediately turned it on the presumptuous crybaby in front of him. (laughs) Damned unfair, he said. Tragic, really. If they're not chopping off the wrong leg or bombing your ancestral village, they're closing their positions. (laughs) She stood her ground. I didn't say it was tragic, she said. I just think it's a pretty lousy way to treat your customers. Unforgivable, Andrew said. Heaven will take note. (laughs) She sucked in her cheeks but stared past him and said nothing. Andrew saw that the other woman, her friend, was looking in the same direction. And then the tellers stopped what they were doing, and the customers slowly turned, and silence came over the bank. Two men wearing black ski masks and blue business suits were standing to the side of the door. One of them had a pistol pressed against the guard's neck. The guard's eyes were closed and his lips were moving. The other man had a sawed-off shotgun. Keep your big mouth shut, the man with the pistol said, though no one had spoken a word. One of you tellers hits the alarm, you're all dead meat. The tellers nodded. Oh, bravo, Anders said. Dead meat. He turned to the woman in front of him. Great script, eh? The stern, brass-knuckled poetry of the dangerous classes. She looked at him with drowning eyes. The man with the shotgun pushed the guard to his knees. He handed the shotgun to his partner and yanked the guard's wrists up behind his back and locked them together with a pair of handcuffs. He toppled him to the floor with a kick between the shoulder blades. Then he took his shotgun back and went over to the security gate at the end of the counter. He was short and heavy and moved with peculiar slowness. Buzz him in, his partner said. The man with the shotgun opened the gate and sauntered along the line of tellers, handing each of them a hefty bag. When he came to the empty position, he looked over at the man with the pistol who said, Whose slot is that? Anders watched the teller. She put her hand to her throat and turned to the man she'd been talking to. He nodded. Mine, she said. Then get your ugly ass in gear and fill that bag. There you go, Anders said to the woman in front of him. Justice is done. (laughs) Hey, Bright boy, did I tell you to talk? No, Anders said. Then shut your trap. Did you hear that, Anders said? Bright boy, right out of the killers. Please be quiet, the woman said. 
Hey, you deaf or what? The man with the pistol walked over to Anders. He poked the weapon into Anders' gut. You think I'm playing games? No, Anders said, but the barrel tickled and he had to fight back the titters. He did this by making himself stare into the man's eyes, which were clearly visible behind the holes in the mask, pale blue and rawly red-rimmed. The man's left eyelid kept twitching. He breathed out a piercing, ammoniac smell that shocked Anders more than anything that had happened, and he was beginning to develop a sense of unease when the man prodded him again with the pistol. You like me, bright boy, he said. You want to suck my dick? No, Anders said. Then stop looking at me. Anders fixed his gaze on the man's shiny wingtip shoes. Not down there, up there. He stuck the pistol under Anders' chin and pushed it upward until Anders was looking at the ceiling. Anders had never paid much attention to that part of the bank, a pompous old building with marble floors and counters, and gilt scrollwork over the teller's cages. The domed ceiling had been decorated with mythological figures whose fleshy, toga-draped ugliness Anders had taken in at a glance many years earlier and afterward declined to notice. Now he had no choice but to scrutinize the painter's work. It was even worse than he remembered. <laughs> the ceiling was crowded with various dramas, but the one that caught Anders' eye was Zeus and Europa, portrayed in this rendition as a bull ogling a cow from behind a haystack. To make the cow sexy, the painter had canted her hips suggestively and given her long, droopy eyelashes through which she gazed back at the bull with sultry welcome. The bull wore a smirk, and his <laughs> eyebrows were arched. If there'd been a bubble coming out of his mouth, it would have said, Hubba hubba. <laughs> What's so funny, bright boy? Nothing. You think I'm comical? You think I'm some kind of clown? No. You think you can fuck with me? No. Fuck with me again, your history. Capiche? Anders burst out laughing. <laughs> he covered his mouth with both hands and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, then snorted helplessly through his <laughs> fingers and said, Capiche? Oh, God, Capiche? <laughs> and at that, the man with the pistol raised the pistol and shot Anders right in the head. The bullet smashed Anders' skull and plowed through his brain and exited behind his right ear, scattering shards of bone into the cerebral cortex, the corpus callosum, back toward the basal ganglia, and down into the thalamus. But before all this occurred, the first appearance of the bullet in the cerebrum set off a crackling chain of ion transports and neurotransmissions. Because of their peculiar origin, these traced a peculiar pattern, flukishly calling to life a summer afternoon some years past, 40 years past, and long since lost to memory. After striking the cranium, the bullet was moving at 900 feet per second, a pathetically sluggish, glacial pace compared to the synaptic lightning that flashed around it. Once in the brain, that is, the bullet came under the mediation of brain time, 
which gave Anders plenty of leisure to contemplate the scene that, in a phrase he would have abhorred, passed before his eyes. It is worth noting what Anders did not remember, given what he did remember. He did not remember his first lover, Sherry, or what he had most madly loved about her before it came to irritate him, her unembarrassed carnality, and especially the cordial way she had with his unit, which she called Mr. Mole, as in, "Uh uh-oh, looks like Mr. Mole wants to play. (laughs) Anders did not remember his wife, whom he had also loved before she exhausted him with her predictability, or his daughter, now a sullen professor of economics at Dartmouth. He did not remember a single line of the hundreds of poems he committed to memory in his youth so he could give himself the shivers at will, not silent upon a peak in Darien, or my God, I heard this day, or all my pretty ones, did you say all? Oh, hellkite, all? None of these did he remember, not one. Anders did not remember his dying mother saying of his father, I should have stabbed him in his sleep. (laughs) He did not remember Professor Joseph's telling his class how Athenian prisoners in Sicily had been released if they could recite Aeschylus, and then reciting Aeschylus himself right there in the Greek. Anders did not remember how his eyes had burned at those sounds. He did not remember the surprise of seeing a college classmate's name on the jacket of a novel not long after they graduated, or the respect he had felt after reading the book. He did not remember the pleasure of giving respect. Nor did Anders remember seeing a woman leap to her death from the building opposite his own just days after his daughter was born. He did not remember shouting, Lord have mercy, He did not remember deliberately crashing his father's car into a tree or having his ribs kicked in by three policemen at an anti-war rally or waking himself up with laughter. He did not remember when he began to regard the heap of books on his desk with boredom and dread or when he grew angry at writers for writing them. He did not remember when everything began to remind him of something else. This is what he remembered. Heat, a baseball field, yellow grass, the whir of insects, himself leaning against a tree as the boys of the neighborhood gather for a pickup game. He looks on as the others argue the relative genius of mantle and maze. They've been worrying this subject all summer, and it has become tedious to Anders, an oppression like the heat. Then the last two boys arrive, Coyle and a cousin of his from Mississippi. Anders has never met Coyle's cousin before and will never see him again. He says hi with the rest but takes no further notice of him until they've chosen sides and someone asks the cousin what position he wants to play. Schultz stop, the boy says. Schultz the best position they is. Anders turns and looks at him. He wants to hear Coyle's cousin repeat what he's just said, but he knows better than to ask. The others will think he's being a jerk, ragging the kid for his grammar. But that isn't it, not at all. It's that Anders is strangely roused, elated, by those final two words 
their pure unexpectedness and their music. He takes the field in a trance, repeating them to himself. The bullet is already in the brain. It won't be outrun forever or charmed to a halt. In the end, it will do its work and leave the troubled skull behind, dragging its comet's tail of memory and hope and talent and love into the marble hall of commerce. That can't be helped. But for now, Anders can still make time. Time for the shadows to lengthen on the grass. Time for the tethered dog to bark at the flying ball. Time for the boy in right field to smack his sweat-blackened mitt and softly chant, They is, they is, they is. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Now, now I can confess that I wanted you to read that story for completely selfish reasons, just because I like it so much. I have nothing particular to oh. say. No, that's not, that's not true. Uh, I mean, for the audience who's hearing that for the first time, you can hear uh, all of the gifts that I was talking about in play. Uh, the, the story's as beautifully made as a sonnet. It's a kind of perfect poem, and it works on, on so many different levels. And... For me, it's one of those stories that actually just provokes wonder. I mean, real wonder, uh, both as a reader and as a writer, because I can't really figure out how he did it. Uh, and you can study that story and dissect it. You can put it in, uh, on a table and cut it up into little pieces, but you can't quite figure out how he did it. And I guess the question, uh, which leads to a larger question, is when you began a story like that, which is so complex in its inwrought moves and its foreshortenings and so forth, did, you, did it come to you of a piece or did you, was it a series of discoveries that led you to, to the making of that story? Well, it, it, um, it actually came to me uh, not of a piece. It was uh, uh, somewhat uncharacteristically for me, a story that took some years to write. And I'll explain. I was living in, uh, I was living in uh, San Francisco back in the uh, early 70s. And uh, this guy I knew dropped by our place in Noe Valley one day. And uh, he was very jittery. And he'd just been in a bank robbery. Just 74, 75, this would have been. And so I said, I was really excited to hear he'd been in a bank robbery. And, uh, you know, having not been in one myself, uh, you know, I, uh, so I started pumping. I said, well, what did they say? And how did it go down? How did it work? And, uh, and he, I said, what did they say? They said, well, stick them up. And, uh, <laughs> and uh-huh, and... Uh, and, and indeed, it, they progressed from one cliché about bank, you know, it was the worst television bank robbery you ever heard of. <laughs> and uh, it occurred to me later that a couple things occurred to me later, which, one of which was uh, that uh, 
In a way, I guess if you're going to be a bank robber, it would be best to be a very conventional bank robber because you don't want to get original when you're robbing a bank. They might not understand that's what you're doing. Um, uh, seriously, I mean, that's, that's not a field in which innovation is, is, uh, is going to get you any farther. So you want to do what everybody expects. You don't want any surprises. And uh, uh, the other thing is that I like many writers, like many people indeed who read a lot, uh, with a certain, I guess, sensitivity to language, tend to overhear and find myself sneering at things that people say that I could have said better or, you know, that's, you know, using nouns as verbs and stuff like that. And so uh, I could have imagined myself doing kind of what Andrews does there, which is, you know, <laughs> rolling my eyes at this... Uh, banal bank robbery and stick them up and calling people names and uh, and, I, and I thought you know geez uh, if I'd been there I could have gotten myself shot because you know guys with guns don't like being laughed at and, and it is they who will decide what the language of the day is uh, not you <laughs> uh, which brings you to an interesting consideration about power and language and you know how is one, how, how do we decide what, the, what, the, what, what, what is going to be the language that we speak? And that does, in certain irrefutable ways, flow from sources of power, cultural power, economic power, all that. Anyway, this set me off in a certain direction, which was completely unfruitful in writing this story. And, uh, and so I wrote, the, you know, what is kind of the first half of it now, and, and I just kind of didn't, I couldn't pull it off. And I thought, well, in the end, all I have here is an anecdote. I just had an anecdote. And, uh, but later I was reading that book. I can't remember the name of it now. The bicameral, uh, the uh, author's name, the bicameral. Julian James. That's it. And this whole theory about right brain and left brain, which I understand has come under some sort of contest since, but it was an interesting theory. And then it gave me, in a sense, a vision of the story, which is a kind of right brain and left brain story, if you will. The, the opening of the, of the story is very kind of linear. It's logical. It progresses in a certain way. The second half is, is, is infused with, with uh, kind of intuitive insights. It's even uh, a little mystical in, in its procedures and, it, and the connections that it makes. And... Uh, Somehow or other, that liberated me to, to play with time uh, more and most of all to discover what it was that this man loved because that was missing from the story. What animates this sarcasm and this bitterness? And, you know, where, where, where underneath all that is something that he loved that has curdled and turned sour? Uh, you have to find that and to, for, this, for it to be something more than an anecdote. Uh, or I felt I did in this story have to find that for it to be more than an anecdote. So I came back to it really years later and, uh, and then rewrote it and completely rewrote the, the opening section as well. But that was the kind of germ I mm. built that on. This completes part one of our podcast with Tobias Wolf. Please check the Lighthouse Writers Workshop blog for links to part two.